afternoon, everybody. My name is Ben, and this is Justin, and this is the Pastor's Study. We are working through the book Evangelical Theology uh, by Michael F. Berg. And this week we're going to be talking about uh, a little bit a little bit more about what is God like. Last week we talked a lot about the Holy Spirit, yep. uh, and this time we're going to be kind of transitioning into, into more about uh, another part of the yeah, so you know we've been focusing kind of on the Trinity, and now we're going into just what is God like, looking at the attributes of God, and I think I think he does a really good job in this chapter of giving us an overview of those things. He kind of does a deep dive into a few things, but mostly giving it to us in a simple way that I think anybody can understand. And he starts off just by looking at some philosophers and some theologians and you know going you know well how do we begin to talk about who god is and he talks about plato describing god as the prime mover or aristotle um, that god is the first principle of the universe paul tillich saying the ground of all being i like francis schaefer the one who simply is and all of these are good things, but we want to dive into it more and deeper and really begin to understand who God is. Because that's what we've said is our whole point of doing this is so that we would know God better, so the church would know God better, so that we would worship him in the truth of who he is. Yeah, I agree. And I, uh, the one of the ones that you didn't mention there was uh, Suzanne Wesley uh, states that God only knows what God is. Yeah, and uh, I I think it's interesting because we we go into this chapter and Michael Bird does a pretty good job of unpacking the things that we can know, the things that we don't really know, the things that we're maybe never going to find out. Uh, but I think it's interesting to think uh, of if God wants to be known, uh, you know, He shared with us what He wants us to know or right. not know. Um, and it kind of made. Uh, I mean, we we'll get into it a little bit more later. But what do you, what was your kind of takeaway from this? What was your um, your your feelings on 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 getting to know God in this way, kind of this whole chapter as a whole. Mm-hmm. Yeah, sure. Yeah, I mean, I think it's I think it's really good because I mean, in just the same way that you know, two people get to know each other, you and I get to know each other over the sure. last few months. You know, you you begin to know somebody's personality, you begin to understand their passions, you begin to understand you know just certain things about them, and therefore you know you can really begin to say, I know somebody. Mm-hmm. I, you know, and the more that, you know, you know a person and the same thing goes with God, the more you can honor them, the more you can follow them, the more you can, you know, know, is this somebody I want to follow? Is this somebody I want to know? Yeah, and that's, yeah. you know, a lot of this is getting to know God because, I mean, we want to know him better. We, mm-hmm. We've gotten that glimpse of him and we want to know even more. And so... You know, it is kind of interesting when you start to dive into these, you know, and one of the things he says in here is no theology, no book can take and look at every single attribute of God because there's no way to do that. I mean, just like we couldn't, you know, I've read a lot of biographies of Ernest Hemingway, but I can't say I know him. Mm. You know, know, there's only so much that we can, can get out of that. So we really know God from that personal relationship, but I think this helps us to build out that personal relationship with God. And so what did you think as you know we begin to look at the communicable and incommunicable 
aspects of who God is, those different attributes. Yeah, I think for me, for that section as well as kind of the chapter as a whole, there was a certain level of like frustration mm-hmm. in, well, if God wants us to know him, uh, then why wasn't it, why isn't it a little easier to, to get it? Why, like, yeah. why aren't some of these things either, either easier to understand um or you know again we will uh, one of the things that we talk about in the uh, the attributes is his um the being outside of time and such right. like that you know if he wanted us to know that and know that about him then why don't we have anything else like that to compare it to yeah and i think it comes down to just the fact that there isn't anything to compare it to you know there's the True. place where um, in here, we're talk, you know, it's talking about how C.S. Lewis and others have gone, look, I mean, when you try to say certain things about God, if you try to make this illogical nonsense, mm-hmm. then you're not really saying anything at all because it would be no different than saying that same thing about us. And there isn't a way to describe it because there's nothing else like it but God. And I think he does do a pretty good job of showing us these things in Scripture and in just general revelation you know both of those things coming together because that's one of the ideas that he brings up very early on is there's certain things that we can understand about god from philosophy and general revelation but we can only go so far sure then we have to bring the scripture in and that's where these difficult questions come out Mm -hmm. is as we're looking at scripture and trying to understand these things and it's those places where you know, you're looking, and we'll get into it a little more as we're diving into it, but where maybe two things seem to counteract on each other or contradict each other, and then you have to look and see, well, when I fuse them together, mm. how do I understand where, it? What does it make yeah. sense? You know, what thing do I have to do? And so, you know, I think it's interesting as you get in, and, you know, we'll, he talks about later on and kind of hits it very early as well as he's talking about these things that, Ultimately, the attributes that are most important, according to Bird, are his glory, his holiness, and his love. Exactly. And I think that's really interesting as we look at all these other things, that all these other things are true, but those are the most important. And he brings it up here and then brings it up later. I mean, holy, 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 you see several times in Scripture as that's the only thing that you see being three times mentioned about God all at the same time. You know, that's what we want to understand. That's what we want to look at. So I think we'll, you know, we'll do what he did. We'll start with these incommunicable attributes. And if you don't know what that means, if you're listening, what is an incommunicable attribute of God? Those are the things that are God's only. It is unlike anything else. It is unlike us. And when we talk about the communicable attributes of God, those are the things that he shares with us. Those are the things that we can look to become more like God in. We are not going to become more like God in his eternity because we are not eternal. We can point to our beginning. Mm-hmm. And so we start there, you know, because that's where you get into this timelessness is yep. in the eternity of God. And I'll just read how he says very simply, sure. the eternity of God means God exists without beginning or end. As Revelation says, he is the Alpha and the Omega. He is the beginning and the end. There is no beginning and end to God. He is eternal. He is timeless. And when we talk about God being timeless, I think he does good again. If we say God is timeless, that means he knows neither past nor future. He exists outside of time-space limitations. And 
I think it is a difficult thing to understand because we have nothing like this. Yeah. And I think we just have to, the way that I've kind of looked at it is, you know, we want to, we've got this idea kind of coming from, you know, medieval theology and literature that, you know, if we go up far enough into the clouds, we're going to hit heaven. We know that's not true. If no, we go yeah. up far enough into the clouds, we're going to break the atmosphere and we're going to be in space. So heaven in itself is, you know, a separate realm, a separate dimension, ever how we want to kind of picture that, that God exists in a separate place from where we are. And we look and understand that is a timeless existence, a timeless place where he is experiencing our timeline past, present, and future is always in the present for him. And I can't explain it any better than that, but I think that's what the scripture so shows us. Sure. You know, because we have we have a God that can step into our everyday moments, mm-hmm. any time and moment that he wants to, but he has a full entire knowledge of the past and a full entire knowledge of the future. We see that very clearly um, on we're looking at this Holy Week and he speaks to Judas before he's betrayed and he knows what's coming. He speaks to Peter before he denies him and he knows what's coming. You know, there is just this picture. We already kind of looked and, and said, even at the very beginning there at Palm Sunday, he says, go into this part of the city. There's a donkey there. Untie it. Bring it to me. We're going to do this. He's in total control of that because he knows the future, but I think the reason that I feel like we have to understand God being timeless is if he's existing in our timeline and, and knows it in that way, then we get into these big questions about predestination and all this, which we'll look at later, in, on, later on as we're getting into this. But, you know, we can still have free will and still have autonomy if he's existing in that and he knows it because we're going to do it in our perspective of time but we've we are doing it we've done it we will do it in his perspective of time because it's all at the same yeah it's in the it's in the sense that god knows everything that's going to happen as though it has already happened and as though it is happening i mean that's the that's the thing it 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 has happened it is happening it will happen is no it's all the same to him which is which i think is the hardest part for us because we're so tied down by hours minutes days And we we calculate everything in the terms of actual physical numbers, whereas he doesn't need any of that. Exactly. He just, he just is and, in that moment. And I mean, and I think it's interesting, and you and I talked about this a little bit earlier, is, you know, even if we're looking at physics and philosophy, we don't understand time. No, oh, yeah. You know, this is not the only place where time gets confusing. Mm. You know, we can get in, I mean, it's just one of those things that, we really don't get is it simply a construct what is it how does it work and we really don't understand it but i think it's interesting you know just that idea you know every single point is present with every space time location for god and 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 so understanding is eternity understanding that timelessness it's it's one of those things that that we take by faith and I, I like that he puts it first in here in this list because it speaks to so much else mm-hmm. that is going to happen in here. 
So, what did you think about how he described God's self-sufficiency? I, I think it was I think it was interesting. It's one of the smaller sections here. He um, he basically saying that God is not contingent. There's no um, there's nothing else that controls God or that God needs. He is right. in and of himself everything that is necessary. Um, and I think that's that that's really good because when it comes to when we talk about salvation and we talk about Jesus, like. I think knowing that God doesn't need us, that the God doesn't need uh, this world, this creation, like it makes the salvation story that much more impactful. Oh, absolutely. And I think this is probably of the, you know, incommunicable attributes, probably the easiest one to understand. It's not yeah. hard to look at God and understand God as one who needs nothing other than himself, sure. that he's completely well, self-sufficient. And, and, but I, at the same time, though, I would almost say that that is, that is, almost equally as difficult to comprehend because if we believe that we were you know created in the image of god like we know that as people on a psychological level need other people like we have a symbiotic relationship with other right people. and i think you know but that gets back into our conversation of the trinity is i think that's part of the threeness of god is mm -hmm. that there is those three persons there is community there is in some, god in and of himself of yeah and i think that's part of that self-sufficiency is understanding that Part of us being made in the image of God is us needing community, but we are not community self-sufficiently like He is. Yeah. I think that's an interesting that's an interesting thing that's going on there, and He doesn't bring that up in here, but I think that's an interesting well, yeah, way to look at it. Because you can even take it, you know, if if you really want to take it back to psychology, you know, um, Maslow has his hierarchy of needs of, right. of what human beings need, and God just doesn't need those things exactly um, exactly because because he's god because he's god and that's everything that we're looking at here i mean that's essentially it's, it's the most sunday it's, school answer it's possible. because he's god yeah. yeah yeah so you know you go into and he, he says the natural consequence of divine self-sufficiency is divine immutability so if he is eternally self-sufficient then he cannot change his being nature personality purpose otherwise it would suggest a deficiency in his prior state so immutability God doesn't change. And I think that's another one that's not that difficult to understand. Yeah. We don't really have a picture of that because we all change. But we can understand a God who doesn't change. He is, he has always been, always will be perfect in who he is. And therefore there is no change. There is no exactly. growth. And I think it's interesting and you know, it kind of fits into a lot of these things that when you think about Philippians, when Paul talks about how, you know, Jesus poured himself out, some of these incommunicable attributes are what he lets go of in that human form for that time because exactly. we see that he does grow and he does learn, he does change. He is existing within the timeline at that point. He does need people. You know, you think of that baby lion in a major that needed its mother and his father and all of these things that are in there. And that's where he begin. that's where taking on that body and taking on humanity is so important because he is giving up, you know, these intricate parts of who he is. Mm -hmm. Well, and I think too this uh, this section is sometimes difficult for people to completely comprehend because it's it's the age old question of uh, why is it that the God of the Old Testament seems to look different than the God of the New Testament? 
And people, you know, people have sometimes said, oh, well, God has changed or God has evolved from the Old to New. And, well, that's not necessarily the case. Right. And that's what we're looking at because both the Old Testament and the New Testament tell us very clearly that God does not change. Mm -hmm. And I think part of the difficulty in that is, you know, when he brings this up, I mean, this is one of the longest sections in here because he brings up those places where it seems like God changes his mind. You know, you've got the place where Abraham's like, well, if there's this, you know, if we can just find one, what can we do? Can we can we save these cities? And you've got Moses pleading for the people. And we've got this picture of God relenting from something that he has said that he's going to do, which can look like God is changing his mind. But when we go in and we add that eternity into it and understand that, when we bring in the scripture that very clearly states that God doesn't change, then we have to ask, okay, well, what does that mean? And, you know, and I think he makes the biblical and the the common argument here and the right one, which is that is the writers of the text anthropomorphizing God so that we understand what is going on, so that we understand that our prayer has power and that our speaking with God has power, because it does. And it's not that God's changing his mind. He says he's going to do X. He knows that Moses is going to plead. And he knows that he's going to relent from doing X. There's no changing of the mind. It's just this is what's going to happen. This is how it's going to come about. But it looks to Moses that God changes his mind. Well, it, yeah, it, it's uh, it, it, well, it seems odd because it just seems like extra steps. Like, you know, God's like, well, I'm going to changed my mind or right. I'm going to do something different than what I said first Yeah, but it's not because I changed my mind it's just because I already planned this you know I'm already going to do this because I, I know what you're going to do but there is the cause and effect between that person doing this and God doing this he just already knows it's going to happen and I think we have to look at it the same way that we look at Joshua he prays that the sun would stand still and it does but we know scientifically that that has nothing to do with the sun standing still. We're going around the sun. What happens in that miracle moment, God makes it look as if the sun stands still, because that's because, but that's the earth not moving in its normal pattern. But Joshua understands it as the sun moving across the horizon. He prays for it. It stands still. He writes down, I prayed for the sun to stand still, and it did. You know, and so when we're looking and looking at this, we, we understand because I think I would look at it that way. Um, if I pray for something to happen, and it does, God answered my prayer. But he wasn't going to, it wasn't that I pled and I changed his mind. He knew what he was going to do, but he also knew that I was going to do this because he's eternal and he knows everything. And as we get into his omniscience, you know, not only does he know everything, but he also knows all of the branches of what could as well. Which is an interesting thing. Well, at, at that point, we, you start to get even more bogged down and almost a little confusing because at that point, it's like, so why didn't God take it in that one branch, or right. why did He allow that prayer to be answered, and another prayer to not be answered? And then at that point, it's like, well, you you have no idea what God's intentions are. Well, and I think there, but there's an understanding that the Scripture says we don't know what God's yeah. intentions are, and I mean, I think that's part of the mystery and part of the understanding is. Even as we look and read and get to know him and understand him, we have to have the humility to understand 
we're not going to understand. Mm. We can understand more and we can understand better, but we're never going to fully understand God and we're never going to fully understand his intentions and his will except for those things that are just clearly stated in black and white, which, you know, ultimately, as the more that we study, we realize there's even more we want to know that we're not going to know until we're sitting right with it. Exactly. And that's the thing. And so, you know, so we're looking at immutability and then we look at impassibility and, you know, and that's interesting. He says divine impassibility means that God cannot be affected by anything such as emotions or events that are external to himself. And, you know, it says divine immutability requires d- divine impassibility. And I'm just going to read this because I don't think I could say it quite better. I think it explains it well. Mm-hmm. This does not mean that God does not have emotions like love, joy, or grief. God clearly has those emotions. Indeed, they even define God's character more properly, impassibility means God is not affected or changed by anything outside of himself. Yeah, I feel like this is uh, is, is almost like just a tag on to the immutability. It is. Um, yeah, I think the, so. You know, it, feel, it feels very similar. It is. Um, in that God God is not affected nor is changed by anything that... Right. Um, by any other person or thing. And, you know, when it speaks a little bit about this, about understanding that in Christ's humanity, he did suffer. And mm-hmm. there, you know, we look and he is affected by those emotions and those events surrounding him. He is weeping over the death of Lazarus and over the pain that Martha and Mary have over the death of their brother. And we see him weeping over the city of Jerusalem and all of these things. There, you know, there is this, this is another one of those things that I think we see him letting go of in that humanity. His his humanity allows him to be able to be affected in that way, which I think is really interesting. So then we get into kind of the the omnis, the, the omnipresence, the omnipotence, the omnibenevolence, the omniscience. And I think these are the ones that we probably know a little better, that we've yeah, probably, probably talked about more. Heard more, yeah. uh, or more frequently said in church or, um, or in Sunday school or something along those yeah. lines. Uh, but the first one is omnipresent, right? And yeah. One, okay. Um, just the idea that God is always present yep. in every, again, this outside of time. Right. Of and this outside of space. I mean, there's yeah. no place where he is not. And I, and again, I don't think that, you know, even though we have no other picture of that, I don't, that one's not hard to imagine mm-hmm. and hard to understand. You know, if he's, if he's not in the, you know, he can be everywhere because he is God and then you know then you get into omnipotence he's all powerful there's nothing that god cannot do and this is where you get into you know where i was talking about lewis talking about you know some of the the crazy questions that mm-hmm. that god gets into you know that people get into with god you know um can god create a rock so heavy that he him Self cannot lift it, or George Carlin had a joke: Can God throw a football so far that He Himself cannot catch it? You know that where you're getting into both omnipresence, omnipotence, all of this stuff kind of pulled out, and you know, and these are good, but the, I mean, it's just absurdities. Lewis says this, and I think it's good as we're thinking about this. I don't think we have a hard time imagining omnipotence either. That God is all powerful; He created this world. There's nothing He cannot do. And, you know, answering that question, can God make a rock so heavy that he cannot lift it? Meaningless combination of words do not suddenly acquire meaning simply because we prefix them to the, to the two words God can. 
It remains true that all things are possible for God. The intrinsic improbabilities are not things but non-entities. It is no more possible for God than for the weakest of his creatures to carry out both of two mutually exclusive alternatives, not because his power meets an obstacle, but because nonsense remains nonsense even when we talk about God. And I love that line. Nonsense remains nonsense even when we're talking about God. So where do you think the line is drawn then between nonsense and legitimately questioning like omnipotence. Uh, well, I mean, I think it, it comes down to those questions like those two that we mentioned that are mm-hmm. ultimately silly questions because they are, you know, they're just impossibilities. It logically makes no sense mm-hmm. because you're, you're one way or another, you're just limiting God's power and he is all powerful. And it's just like, it's just a nonsense question. It's, it's getting into, um, through the looking glass mentality of what kind of silliness can we bring up? I mean, I think when we're talking about God's power, I think the the difficult part comes when we add the this one and the next one together. When we add is omnipotence with omnibenevolence, mm. God is all powerful and He's all loving, but we see the difficulties and the evils and all these things in the world, and we ask ourselves why God doesn't just squash all that. Mm. I think that's where the difficulty comes in and where the serious questions come in more than just about omnipotence itself. Yeah. Well, and that's the thing too, is like, I think, yeah, when you start to, you bring up the, the omnibenevolence and the omnipotence and you start to combine them, you get questions like, well, why do bad things happen to good people? Right. Or some questions like that. But I almost wonder if like those questions are, you know, almost as equally as important as the questions of, well, what if God couldn't do something? Yeah. Because if God can't do that, well, is there something else that God can't well, do? Well, I think that's the thing. If you say God can't do something, if, if God can't do X, then you open up the doors of what can he not do. Mm-hmm. And the answer to the question is God, there is nothing that God cannot do outside of illogical things that make no sense. Sure. Within how he has set up creation within himself. God cannot sin. You know, that's sure, outside yeah. of who he is. You know, there is no there is no evil in God. That's that omnibenevolence. He is good. Nothing that God does is not. And we get into those questions about good and evil, and we'll get into that more sure. as we dive in. But, I mean, we have to understand that is that place where we do have a will, and we do have some autonomy to do those things. And it's very clear that he is not evil, but it is very clear that he gives us the autonomy to disobey. And I think that's where a lot of that difficulty comes in. And, you know, we've talked about it a good bit, so we won't spend too much time. But, you know, then you get into omniscience, the you know, the absolute knowledge of God. There is nothing that God does not know. And I think that sometimes is a stumbling point when, as we've already said, when you combine it with the eternity of God, that timelessness, that's when we get into, you know, the questions about predestination and all of these other things. Well, yeah, and, and maybe maybe there's a week where we can spend more time just digging into some of, you know, the, the more nitty-gritties. Of, oh, of yeah, as we go in and dive uh, in, we'll get to all of these these other questions uh, as well. Because I, because I know for a fact there's a lot of times I've had conversations with people about the omniscience side of things um, and how it relates to some of the omnibenevolence and stuff like that is, you know, 
if God is good and is, mm-hmm. you know, uh, then why do these bad things happen? Well, right. it's okay, sure, there's sin in the world and whatnot. Like right. That. But then, but God could have right. done something. And I think that's where we get into that place where, yes, God could have created a world in which sin does not exist. Mm-hmm. God could create a world which, you know, we don't have autonomy, that we're all, you know, you know, essentially robotic beings that are controlled and programmed sure. to do it. You know, and then we have to begin. That's when we start to dive into that question: is why this world? Mm-hmm. Why is this what God has created? And I think we have to get into. And, and when we get into the creation section, mm-hmm. we talk more about this. But when you're getting into that, you know, what does it mean for God to be good in creation? And I would say that that would mean that He was created the best of all worlds. Well, what does that mean, and how do we understand this as being that? I think that's where you get into a lot of those questions, because we yeah. can answer it in a really trite way, but when people are asking serious questions for serious reasons, we don't want to just give you know, those kind of silly Sunday school answers that don't dive into the pain somebody might be having or the trauma they might be having or just the legitimate you know, intellectual questioning they might be having. You sure, want to yeah. be able to dive in and be serious about those things. And I think these are those places, you know, so far we've kind of been in sort of a nebulous kind of zone, but we're starting to get into those deep, difficult things as we get into these attributes because we realize when we say X about God and we look at the world and try to figure out how those things go together, that's when we're getting into some difficulty. Yeah. And so, let's go into the communicable attributes, and we're kind of getting, we're going to kind of rush through these a little bit. Thankfully, these are the ones that people know pretty well. These are the ones um, that, yeah. I and, mean, and the reason that they're communicable is because usually we can communicate them well, and two is because we we share them with things God. that we share with God. Absolutely, God is personal, and I I think that's an important thing. You know, He has relationships outside of Himself. And I think that's a huge thing to understand, you know, and we talked about, you know, God is intimately a relational being from just who he is because he is trying father, son, and Holy spirit. And so that comes out of that. God is faithful. Yep. He's going to stay true to what he says. Yep. He's trustworthy. uh, And everything that we've seen thus far, when he says he's going to do something, he does. It happens. Yeah. God is loving. And, you know, we see that over and over again, and the scripture tells us God is love, and he gives us this by pouring his love into us through the Holy Spirit, and we're to share that love with others. You know, God is holy. He is set apart, and we've already said, you know, it's the one thing in scripture that it just, it just bang, God's holy, holy, holy. You just need to know how set apart he is, you know, just how transcendent he is, but... At first, it seems like that's one that he doesn't share. Well, it, and it's one of those. But he does. You have to. You cannot relate holy with perfect. There's, right. There's a difference, and I think holy is almost more of like an attitude or a um, uh, not an emotion, but like a, a state of being. I think you're right. Yeah. Whereas perfect is an action. It's that set of state of being of being separate. Mm-hmm. You know, we are holy because God has pulled us out because we are following Christ. Because we have accepted Christ as king, we are pulled out. We are in his hands, and we are set apart. 
And that's what being holy means. And then that idea that we have of holy, of holier than thou, of that perfection, is what we are striving towards and becoming more like God. But we are already holy. We're yeah. already set apart. It just, you know, how set apart are we? Are we yeah. living that life that continues that? And then we get that glory, the gloriousness of God and, you know, we think about it, that there is going to be that time when we are glorified, mm -hmm. when we have been resurrected and we are with God. And that's that picture that we, we get from that attribute. Yeah. And, and so I think those are kind of some of, those, some of those easier ones to look at. And, you know, he says later on that the, you know, the three main ones of God are glorious, holy, loving. These are the things that, that just stand out. Um, they're described very strongly about God. They, they kind of come together and blend together naturally. And so if we are going to seek to be like God, those are the things that we want to work on. What did you think, and we'll kind of end it here, because I think it's like the last big question in here, and he spends a good bit of time on it. What do you think about the question, is God male? Well, I think it's a, uh, a loaded question in today's climate because yep. everybody today would like to, you know, or, or there's a large uh, pull for this inclusion and um, a, a drift away from the patriarchal system that was set up in history. Right. Um, and unfortunately, fortunately, uh, the Bible was written in a time which was heavily patriarchal. Absolutely. Um, and women were treated as lesser than men. Um, in, in a lot of those cultures. But I think the, the question of, is God male? You have, the, I, I like what you said earlier about the whole, like, the cho like God chose his pronouns kind of thing. Right, yeah. Um, but at the same time, like, I think, like, the question is bigger than that. Oh, absolutely. It, it, it's it not, yeah. like, I almost would like to say that there is no, like, that one is it even that important whether or not God is one way or not? And I think that's the question. I, I don't think it is, and I think the Scripture shows us that. I mean, we know God, other than when the Son comes down and takes on a in the incarnation a body, which is a male body. I mean, sure. you know, we know that you know there is you know He's an incorporeal being. Mm -hmm. I mean, that's not we're not looking. At that God is not some bearded old man sitting in the clouds yeah. as we would have pictures of it be. And I think what's interesting as you begin to look at the scripture is yes, most of the time we see God anthropomorphized as a man. Whether it's father, the way he's described as a warrior, though there are female warriors in scripture. I mean, sure. one of the interesting things is even in a patriarchal society, we see Deborah, a judge, lifted up in those people. We see the way that Jesus lifts up women to places of prominence. We see Mary Magdalene as the first witness to the resurrection when a woman as a witness would have meant nothing in that culture. And all of this that comes to life is, is we see women being built up within the scripture, built up within Christianity in a new way that we hadn't seen before. Now, is it still patriarchal? Absolutely. We can't get away from that, but there is a sense of building them up more than they were before in that. And so over and over again, we see, you know, God in that state of, you know, being described in a masculine way, 
but we also see him described as a mother. And he talks about it really strongly in here. We see Jesus describe himself as the mother hen and, you know, all those around him as he's bringing in the chicks. And so we have to understand that there is a maternal nature to God, too. But I think he makes a really good point in, you know, talking about essentializing gender said, I would also urge against the danger of essentializing gender. We should not stereotype gender as if masculinity is domination and femininity is nurturing. Masculinity is more than ruling and fighting, and femininity is more than mothering and caring. Women can lead and fight while men can nurture and care. It is remarkable how much feminist discourse trades in stereotypes and essentializing male and female identities. And so I think that some of it is understanding that you know, just like, you know, the big thing like late 90s and early 2000s was men getting in touch with their feminine side. And, you know, and so us seeing that that God uses the people that he has inspired to write the scripture to describe him as both father and mother shows that he is just as attuned to that edge of things as he is to the other side. And I think we can look at it and say, and I think it does come down to something, you know, I'm not personally going to pray to Mother God. I don't think that's the way that we're called. To, that's not how Jesus tells us that we are to pray. And even though it is kind of a flip kind of thing that I said earlier, I think there is a point to if our if if we're coming to this question because of cultural questions, and part of the culture is pushing back right now and saying, "Well, I get to choose whether or not I'm going to describe myself, and whether you're going to describe me as male or female," which we can get into it another time, but that's the question. That, the reason that's in this book mm. is that question that's coming out there and the feminist theology that's wanting to push away, you know, talking about God as father or talking about God as male. He has chosen in his revelation of who he is to us to most of the time predominantly use a masculine name and a masculine pronoun. And I think they're, you know, and so I like, yeah, I mean, it is kind of a flip kind of thing, but I think there's some truth in it too. Yeah. Yep. And so, you know, as we look at this, you know, I don't think that that's the most important question. I think we, but it is one of those things that comes up as we talk to people. And that's one of the things that we want to do as we study and think about theology is what are the questions that somebody who doesn't believe in God is going to ask me? What are, some, what are the questions that somebody who's seeking out the truth about God and Christ, what are the questions that they're going to ask me so that I'm ready to answer those things? And we don't want to answer them in a flip way. We don't want to answer them in a judgmental way. We want to take their questions as serious, and we want to make sure that we're coming to them with the best information we can. And one of the things that I, that I want to say, because I think there's so much that we talked about today that this is sometimes the answer, there's never a reason that we can't say, I don't know. And sure. say, let me go look that up, and I'm going to come back to you with an answer. Or, I don't know, it's one of those mysteries that nobody can really understand, but here's what I think about it. And I think those are those are legitimate answers when, when we're getting those questions from people. Well, I'm going to close this in prayer, and we look forward to you being with us next week as we dive in and look at God as creator. So we're going to get into God as a creator, get into creation next week as we begin to talk more about who God is. Join me in prayer. Father God, I thank you. I thank you for this day. I thank you for the opportunity that we have to come 
and talk about you. Lord, I pray as we continue to go through this book that you would grow us in our knowledge of you and that more importantly, you would grow us in our relationship with you. We thank you, we praise, and we glorify your name.